Well, we can turn back to the um, passage read there, Isaiah 52, and I'd like us to think about uh, the first half of verse 13. Uh, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Well, the verses that we read from verse 13 of chapter 52 down to the end of chapter 53, they are known as the fourth uh, servant song of Isaiah. There are obviously three others, and the theme of uh, each of them is uh, God's servant. Uh, Sometimes the servant is Israel, but in others, the servant is somebody, an individual. And uh, here in this uh, particular song, it's obviously an individual that is described. The context of the of this particular song in the previous verses in verses 1 to 12 of Isaiah they're describing a time of great spiritual revival uh, when uh, Zion will be restored and there will be um, watchmen or preachers uh, going around and they'll be described there, as it says, I think, in verse 7, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. And, of course, that particular verse is quoted in Romans chapter 10, uh, when Paul is describing what happens uh, with the gospel of Christ. So there, if we had been reading Isaiah chapter uh, 52, and we would have read about this uh, wonderful um, time of spiritual progress uh, that is going to appear, during which there would be um, (coughs) a wide um, expansion of the kingdom of God, and all these individuals will be going round with this message. Well, the obvious question to ask is, what is the message? And I suspect, and it's only a suggestion, but I suspect that the, the message is described in this song. And there, there's a contrast between what's predicted in verses 1 to 12 and what's said in the actual song itself. And uh, uh, the contrast is, in verses 1 to 12, there's lots of people wanting to listen to the message. Whereas in this particular song, as we know in chapter 53, at verse 1, nobody is listening. I mean, that's Isaiah's experience. Who has believed our report? And the answer is, at that particular time, nobody. But it just comes after this uh, prediction of uh, 
widespread acceptance of the message that is going to happen uh, after the events described in this song uh, take place. In the song, uh, two people uh, speak about the servant. Uh, one of the ones that speaks about the servant is the one who sent him. That's obvious from the verse in our text. Behold my servant. So somebody has sent the servant, and the servant appears again later on, down in verse 11 of chapter 53, where he's called again, the righteous one, my servant. So this, and of course we, we know who the master is there, don't we? The master who has a servant. And the master there is God the Father. He has a servant. But as I mentioned earlier, there's also envoys who are speaking, if we want to call them that, or um, prophets or preachers or whoever else wants to share the message. And they're described several times throughout this particular passage. Somebody has, obviously comments have been made about this particular song because it's um, very graphic and very well known. And as we know, some people uh, say that if we didn't know otherwise, we would imagine that Isaiah was sitting at the foot of the cross. But of course he's um, not sitting at the foot of the cross. There's going to be centuries are going to pass before the cross occurs. Yeah, we can tell that he was um, there, and the words that he describes, it's almost as if he was an eyewitness. Indeed, we get more about the suffering of Jesus on the cross from Isaiah 53 than we do from the, actually from the Gospels. So that's a reminder to us of the, the wonder of the word of God. But there in verse 13, the, the father speaks, and I suppose when God says, behold, we're meant to look and listen. And God says there, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Verses 13 to 15, it's very hard to understand why somebody ever put a chapter division between them, but um, verses 13 to 15 uh, describe their kind of introduction to the song, the theme that's going to be in it. And I suppose we could say that in verse 13, we have um, what we could call the Raising of the servant means servants get commended, don't they? And uh, the degree of the commendation depends on the ability of the commender. And a good servant, well, gets a good uh, reward. And this servant, my servant, he is going to get an incredible reward. If we say something once, 
that's usually good enough. If we say something twice, then that suggests pay attention. But if we said three times, and all in the one sentence, he shall be high, that's once, and lifted up twice, and exalted three times. So, this is God the Father speaking, and he is saying to everyone, you've no idea how high this exaltation is going to be. I suppose he's saying to us, or to whoever these people are speaking to, think of the heights you can think of, whatever these heights are. And I suppose at the time, or any time, we would just imagine the most powerful person in the world, whoever that happened to be. But they're only described once. They're high. But this coming servant, when his exaltation comes, words aren't going to describe it. All you can do to, to illustrate its significance is just repeat words with the same meaning. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. And of course Isaiah 53 fits into Peter's description of what the whole Bible's about. The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And sometimes it's hard, I think, for us to get our heads around that. Because sometimes we think the Bible is all about us. It does involve us, but it's not all about us at all. We are never going to reach this exaltation. We're going to, as it were, see it if we're Christians. And we're going to get the benefits of it. But even in the world to come, when we understand in a far greater manner what it means for Jesus to be exalted, even then, it's him that's exalted. The Bible's about God's plan to exalt his son to the highest place after his incredible sufferings. Sufferings on our behalf. So he's raised up there in verse 13. And how's he going to get? What's the basis of all this? Well, it's described in verse 14 in this introduction. And if we want to talk about contrasts, what a contrast between 13 and 14. In verse 13, the exaltation is so grand that we can't describe it. But in verse 14, the method or the way by which you will be exalted is also beyond description. All that Isaiah can say is that 
Something's going to happen to this servant that is beyond whatever happened to any other person. His appearance is going to be so marred beyond human semblance and is far beyond that of the children of mankind. Whatever tragedy has happened, here is the ultimate. So in verse 13, he's got ultimate glory. And in verse 14, he's got ultimate suffering. But what's the result going to be? Well, it's in verse 15. And he's going to sprinkle many nations. The word sprinkle just means to cleanse them. He's going to cleanse many nations. Something defiles them. Something makes them, they're, they're marred. Marred by sin. And this suffering individual, after he's been highly exalted, is going to cleanse the nation. And that's amazing, isn't it? Peoples are going to experience his cleansing power. And that's astonishing. And as we think of this first line, it's very striking, isn't it? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Clearly, God, the Father, he is confident about his servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. So he's also, in addition to being confident, there's a measure of delight, isn't there? Behold, my servant, look at him. It's Here's the one who gives me real pleasure. When we sang Psalm 15 a minute ago, who did we think about when we sang it? Who fulfills Psalm 15? If we didn't think about Jesus, we missed the point. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Which of us has got the right to go there? Maybe there's degrees of devoutness. I have no idea whether there is or not. But just imagine if there were. The most devout person among us has got no right to ascend the hill of the Lord. No right in ourselves. But Jesus did. And the Heavenly Father delighted in him. A life of constant obedience. And such was the Heavenly Father's delight that he's eager here to mention it. Behold, 
stare, consider with wonder, take him in, contemplate. So I'd like us to think a bit about this servant. When did he become the servant? Why did he become the servant? What does it mean for this particular feature to be promoted? His wisdom. Why does God the Father not say, Behold, my servant shall act lovingly. Or behold, my servant shall act peaceably. Or behold, my servant will act holily. Why this focus on wisdom? So just think about these three things. When did he become a servant? Well, the Bible tells us when he became one. When he was born. Philippians chapter 2, very well-known verses, 6 and 7, talking about Jesus, who being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So, we could almost say that's a display of wisdom. As he, the eternal Son of God, decided to make himself nothing. As the older version tells us, he made himself of no reputation. I mean, it's not that others did that to him. I mean, they, they tried to do it afterwards. But he was the first to do it. He made himself nothing. The one who was God, in very nature God, who possesses everything. He included, among all his assets, equality with God. But he made himself nothing. Became a man. When he was born, he was born as a servant. He wasn't born to become a servant. Although he did, as it were, become one. But he was born as a servant. He's going to serve not just God, but us. He's got to serve you and me by providing for us a perfect life. He's got to cover every area of our lives, including what happened to us at the beginning. And there he is, a servant. And when we think about the birth of Jesus, and it's always good to do that, but each time we do, sometimes I think we forget this. Who's he lying in the manger? 
servant. So that's when he became the servant. Did it wisely. We hail his wisdom. Why did he become the servant? Well, different answers can be given to that question, but the astonishing thing is that you, the plan, it's all part of a plan, we know that. God's eternal plan way back before creation. We don't understand this, but that's nothing to be too perturbed about. Lots of things in life we don't understand. I don't understand where the atmosphere comes from that I can breathe at this moment. Way back in eternity, Father, the Son, and the Spirit had a plan. And they only, ever, ever, they only have ever had one plan. There's no plan B. There's just one plan. And in that particular plan, it involved the Heavenly Father calling the Son to become the servant. It wasn't that... Um, shall we say, although when we start talking like this, it gets a bit confusing, it wasn't done a, a week before creation or a thousand years before creation or a million years before creation. This has been God's plan as long as God has existed. God had no beginning. This is what he thought about, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They thought about this great venture, if we want to put it that way, in which the Son of God would become a servant. And that's what he did. The Heavenly Father called him. And there in Psalm 40, we sang about what the son thought as he was becoming a servant. And it's sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, that's Jesus, here I am, I have come. It's written about me in the scroll. And the author of Hebrews tells us that's what Jesus thought at his birth. As he was coming into the world, he said these words. Said them to the heavenly Father. Here I am. I've come. He's here to serve. He delighted to do it. Your law is written in my heart. It was there. He had come to love and serve and to obey. He did it all because he loved the Father. He says that there in John chapter 14 and verse 31. He's talking about the cross. And he says this. 
but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. He was given this mission to perform, a task to fulfill. And he did it with eagerness, and he did it with determination. And in every second that involved the process, he loved the Father. His heart never decreased in the zealousness of his love. And that's why he became the servant. It's an amazing insight into God, isn't it? The essence of sin, according to the Bible, is for humans to climb. To climb to where they shouldn't go. The essence of service, as far as Jesus was concerned, is to go down. And down he went. So he's here on earth, and he's the wise servant. And the Bible gives us hints here and there of his service as the wise servant. We'll just mention some of them. When he was 12, he goes up to Jerusalem to the Passover. And Luke tells us about that. And he, we know the story and we, we are told that Mary and Joseph, well, they lost him. Which is not really the case, is it? They thought they had lost him. But he knew where he was. And he knew where he should be. And where is he? What would we expect a wise 12-year-old to do when he's up in Jerusalem for the Passover? Well, there he is. They find him in the temple with the doctors and the teachers, and he and they are having a discussion. He wants to know. This book, he's almost saying to these doctors and teachers, you know about it. Tell me what's in it. And there he is, we're told he was asking them questions. And they were astonished at his learning. But he's acting wisely. If he hadn't done that, we would question his wisdom. He's just acting there wisely. And we're told prior to him doing that, that he was wise. And then after he had done that, he went down to Nazareth and was subject to Mary and Joseph. And he grew in wisdom. Just wise everywhere. And then one day he becomes, he appears in public. It was part of his wise preparation that no one knew who he was. Imagine if there had been a sign up somewhere saying, 
the Messiah is living in Nazareth. And you can take a trip to go and see him. And what kind of preparation would that have been? There's no, no one knows he's there. He's hidden. It's all part of his wisdom. If they want to know anything about the Messiah, they're not to go to Nazareth. They're to go to the scriptures. But one day, it all becomes public and he gets baptized. He's at the end of the queue after everybody else has had their moment with John. And John doesn't want to baptize him. But he's here on a mission. He's here to rescue sinners. He's got to identify with them. And so John baptizes him, and the voice comes from heaven. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Behold my servant. The divine verdict on the hidden 30 years. But it was predicted of him that when he would appear, he would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And as the role of a counselor is to tell, to explain. And as we think of Jesus, what makes him a wonderful counselor? Well... Spurgeon in a sermon on these verses tells us there's three things that made him a wonderful counselor. The first one was that he shared in heaven's decisions. Every decree that, or every, whatever we want to put it, every aspect of the eternal decree, he shared in it. And because that is the case, he can explain them to us. But how easily and how simply he declared it. These incredible, mysterious aspects that it's impossible for us to understand. He just comes and explains them by telling stories. He speaks about shepherds seeking lost sheep. Well, that's what he's doing, isn't it? When he talks about a father embracing a wayward son, and that's what the eternal counsels are about. And he just explains it in very simple terms. And because he's a wonderful counselor, we can go and speak to him about it. We can just say to him, tell us what it means. Take up his word and look at it. And we just say, well, I don't understand this. And we just ask him to teach us. And he does. And that's amazing. The insights people get into what salvation is all about. And any insight any person has ever had has only come from the wonderful counselor. Nobody has it because they're brainier than somebody else. It all comes from him. They may be able to explain it in more sophisticated language. But the actual understanding comes from, from Christ himself. He's the wonderful counselor. 
And you, know, you get examples of that everywhere in the Bible. And sometimes they're just put together as contrasts. There's Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel. When he comes up to ask Jesus a question, and he, he has sort of got the uh, posture that he's going to endorse Jesus. And we discover that very quickly Nicodemus finds himself, he doesn't understand. Jesus says to him, you have to have a new life. Be born again. And Nicodemus is puzzled. But there he is, the wonderful counselor saying to him. And in order to get him to understand, he talks about the incident in the Old Testament where the serpent was raised up in a pole. And if anybody looks at that serpent in the Old Testament, it was healed of the bites that they got. And he, Jesus just says to the Nicodemus, it's just like that. And then John, the next person John has Jesus, the wonderful counselor speaking to, is at the opposite end of the spectrum from Nicodemus. And that's the woman of Sychar. And he talks to her about life-giving water that will satisfy her soul forever. And he does it so simply just by comparing himself to the water that's in the well. And if she drinks of the water that he can give, she'll never thirst. So he's, he just has this ability to make things so straightforward and so easy to understand. You know, there's, there's things in the gospel that are above our grasp of things until Jesus teaches us. But the gospel is not there to be confusing. The gospel is straightforward. And Jesus made it like that. What's he like as a servant? These words in Matthew chapter 20. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's his own self-description. He's almost giving to us a life motto. People like to have a statement that defines who they are. Well, here's a definition of Jesus, given by himself. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. He's got a servant mentality. That's just what he wants. It's not a slavish fear, but he just loves to serve. I am among you as he who serves. That tells us there was no day, no hour, no minute 
when Jesus wasn't serving. He's just doing everything for the benefit of others. He's just got this other-centered person mentality. He's always looking out for others. We talk about people going the second mile. And we speak about it when they do it occasionally. But Jesus did it constantly. He was always acting on behalf of others. What miracle did Jesus ever do for himself? He could have done anything for himself, but he never did. I mean, the devil and the temptation tried to get him to do something for himself, which he could have easily done, turn these stones into bread. But he didn't. He did nothing for himself. There was unlimited service. Think of him in Gethsemane. And there's a real test there. He's about to see the what it's going to cost him to be the servant. The price he has to pay. And this awful cup is put into his hand, cup of divine wrath. And it's no longer a lifetime away. It's no longer, as it were, an eternity away. It's happening tomorrow. And as he takes it, looks at it, he says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It's a horrendous experience, and it's starting to rise up before his human mind. And yet he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes ahead. He's unlimited. And he's wise, isn't he? It would not be wise just to shrug your shoulders. Oh, here's the cup. That would not be wise, would it? He feared it. It was going to be something. If you had asked him, give us an estimation of this cup you're about to drink. What would he have said? It's as deep as the Pacific. When it comes over my soul, would be like if I was floundering in the Atlantic. Words can't describe it. And therefore he prayed about it. A wise servant. He's got a choice. You know, in Israel, there was a ritual whereby a slave could get his freedom. And there was a ritual if he chose not to have his freedom. And if he chose not to have his freedom, he would be taken to the door post and his ear would be pierced. That was a sign he wanted to be a slave because his master was so good to him. He wanted to be 
that person's servant. And quite often, a reason why the slave did this was because he was married and he wanted to remain with his wife. So in order to have his wife, he would remain a servant, a slave. And that kind of ritual is a faint picture of what the servant had in Gethsemane. The choice is, humanly speaking, he goes free and his wife doesn't. Or he does the full act of service and he has his wife forever. And of course his wife are his people. And that's the choice ahead of him. Do you want your people to be in glory? Well, drink the cup. And he did. What a servant. He heads to the cross, full of love. But he's going there as a servant, God's servant. The one who's doing what we can't do, pay the penalty. And on the cross, he acted wisely, didn't he? In the middle of his service, he acted wisely. As these soldiers nail him to the cross, what should the wise servant do? He's paying the penalty for their sins, isn't he? A few hours later, they're going to be standing at the foot of the cross, stating he's the Son of God. How is the wise servant going to handle their mistreatment of him? By praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. How does a wise servant react when a <coughs> criminal who deserves to be where he is <coughs> turns to him and says, Remember me when you come to your kingdom. What's a servant going to say to such a person? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. As a servant, he's got to keep the fifth commandment. He's not allowed to forget that it's there. He looks after his mother arranges for John to take care of her. He's a wise servant. When the hours of darkness comes, the incomprehensible hour, where it cannot be explained, supposing you put every word in the dictionary into it. He just talks to his father and speaks to him, why have you forsaken me? not a question of rebellion. 
servant is addressing the father out of the ultimate place of darkness. When he finishes the task, he just says it's finished. There's no amplification, is there? Finished. And he knows how to die. Into your hands I commit my spirit. The servant, our wise servant, behold my servant. As we stop, he gave us a graphic picture of it all, didn't he, in the upper room when he washed the disciples' feet. None of them were prepared to do it. And as we think about that incident where Jesus washed their feet, and uh, we magnify the, the humility of the Savior, and we perhaps are disappointed by the selfishness of the disciples, but of course, the, the real question is to ask, what would we have done in the upper room? I mean, that is the real question, isn't it? Would we have been like the servant, the wise servant? Or would we have been with the twelve, none of them who was prepared to be a servant? But he was there, humbling himself just to serve them all. And it's rather staggering, and with this we'll stop, but it is rather staggering to think about the Savior on his way to the cross, going round the upper room on his knees, washing the feet of the disciples. Behold my servant, he shall act wisely. Shall we pray? Lord, we look at Jesus, the one who shows us how to serve. As he told the disciples, I have given you an example. Lord, it's easy for us to admire him. But the real challenge is whether we imitate him. But we thank you, Lord, that he was the perfect servant, that he never wasted an opportunity. But he who was the king of glory was prepared as he made his way through life to carry our sins to the cross. We pray, Lord, that we would value this servant and his service, not just his service in the past, but what he's doing now, because he's still the servant, and indeed he's going to be the servant forever, our prophet 
our priest and our king. So help us, Lord, to do what we're told in this verse, to behold the servant. So help us to do so for your own name's sake.